The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. All right, I want you to think about the seasons in your life that you have experienced the most growth. Now, I'm just going to define growth generically as just a time of maturing, getting better at something, however you want to define growth. When have you grown the most in your life? What seasons? So in high school, one thing I, I loved to do was, was to play sports. Um, try to play sports in pretty much every season. One thing, that, one sport that I played was, was cross country, um, ran cross country. It's a very weird sport in that essentially you just wreck your body over and over and over again. Every single day, all to get better, you get this high heart rate, you just go through grueling pain, all to get better at running. You're just supposed to run faster and longer and quicker and do all of those things. Then I also played basketball. In basketball, practice was by far way better in basketball than it was in cross country because it was enjoyable. We got to shoot hoops. We got to play basketball. We got to do the thing we enjoyed doing. But then it was interesting in basketball, the punishment if we messed up or if you mess up in basketball, baseball, football, I don't know, whatever other sports you guys have played, usually the punishment from the coach is to go run. Like, go do sprints, go run a mile, go run half a mile, whatever it is. And it's like, well, I just spent three months doing that over and over and over again for whatever reason. I don't know why I chose to do that sport. It was somehow sickly enjoyable. But then it was interesting in thinking about these times of, of grueling pain are actually what made us better. It what, it's what united us as a team. It's what got us better as a team. I think about something like weightlifting, a thing... I have not done in many years and have no desire to do anytime soon. But it's literally, you are having microscopic tears in your muscles. You are tearing your muscles over and over again so that then they grow back stronger and fitter and then you are stronger. Now, if you stop doing it for a season, like myself, those muscles, they become softer over time. They're not, they're not quite as fit. That's interesting to think about school, job, relationships, sports, difficult and trying seasons, seasons where we have to push ourselves, often bring about the most growth, whether personally or, or spiritually or physically. Now, in the sweet seasons of life, those times that are just enjoyable, maybe, maybe you grow. But the hardest seasons of life often bring growth. Now, as we think about Ecclesiastes, Chapter 7, we are in this poetic scene. Now, differing translations, depending on what translation you're reading out of, differing amounts of this chapter have different amounts set off to be poetry. In the ESV, it's kind of set off from the rest of uh, the chapter to show that this is, is meant to be a poem. And so this isn't necessarily offering absolutes, but it's to teach us, it's to push us, it's to paint a picture and then we're going to have this poetry for 13 verses. And then there's argument over if verse 14 is part of the poem or if it's just the summary idea. Now in this, in this poem, we have 13 verses in, in the ESV. Now the, the word in Hebrew, better or good, it's tov. 
it starts off six of these verses. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, verse 8, and verse 11. You're not going to see that in an English translation, but the same word starts off all of those verses. And essentially, it's going to be comparing what, what is something. Something is better than something else. Better or good, it's used a total of seven times in these verses. The same is true of wisdom or wise. It's also used seven times. These are two of the main foci of this passage. What is better and what is wise? And so this section of scripture, it's a direct response to the verses that Trevor taught on last week. So let's read verse 12 and then we'll continue in, or chapter 6, verse 12, and then continue into the first few verses of chapter 7. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be better after him under the sun? Chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So if we think about verse 1, and I'm going to break some of these verses up by verse 1a and verse 1b, kind of the second, first half or the second half. The first half of verse 1, we probably all get this lovely proverb at a head level. Precious ointment was a costly luxury in ancient Israel. And so the preacher's telling us that this good name is better than money or wealth or this precious ointment, cars, house, clothes, fill in the blank. It's better than what the world can offer. And we kind of all get that. We get that at a, at a head level. But then the second half of verse 1 through verse 4, there's kind of going to be question marks about what, what exactly is the preacher saying? What exactly is the point? The second half in verse 1, it's a, it's a form of incomplete parallelism. So the, the word better in verse 1, in the ESV it doesn't show up, but what we're, to meet, what we're to read is the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. What in the world? Why is death better than birth? And then verse 2, the first half, it keeps going. The house of mourning, essentially a funeral, is better than a house of of feasting. It's better than a party. The second half of verse 2, the reason that a funeral is better than a party is because death is the end of all mankind. It's, it's confusing. What, what are we to get out of this? Verse 3, sorrow, frustration, vexation, that, those are better than laughter. Why? Second half of verse 3, a sad face is good for the heart. That's what the NIV says. Verse 4, again, the wise are at the funeral and the fools are at the party or at the house of pleasure. Now, what does all of this mean? I think we learned from the second half of verse 2 that the living will lay it to heart. We have to have some level of contemplation required to understand what the preacher is trying to say. Verses 1 through 4, we see that the day of death is a better teacher than the day of life. This emphasizes that painful times like bereavement are more effective prods to growth in spiritual wisdom and maturity than elation that comes from a newborn baby. 
We think about the second half of, of verse 1 with the day of birth. Maternity wards are some of the happiest places on earth. Some of the hardest places, maybe the most painful places, but it's a place of life and hope and joy. And the happiness experienced there is not as good of a teacher as the pain of death on a spiritual or emotional level. Tragedy, death, pain, that is often what matures us. Now we're not saying that the day of birth is unimportant or not amazing, but that the day of death is a better teacher than the day of birth. Now in in high school and in college, I was terrible in English class. My, my mom was a English teacher at my high school uh, for 28 years, spent her whole career there, and I was just terrible in English class. I don't know if I've actually ever told her, but I don't, I don't know if I ever read a full book in high school. It was like, can I find the spark notes? Can somebody else tell me what I'm supposed to know? I can't, I'm not good at reading. I don't like reading. Somebody help me out here. So I was terrible in English class. And yet, I was kind of thinking, thinking this week and trying to do, go back and learn things that I probably should have learned about the way stories can be written as either tragedy or comedy. And tragedies are often serious stories with sad endings. And comedies are humorous stories with happy endings. And many people would articulate that tragedies are often much truer to life than comedies. Now we see that life is both comedy and tragedy. There's sweet moments and there's mind-blowingly difficult moments. And you may be in here, you may be in a sweet moment in life, you may be in a mind-blowingly difficult moment. But difficult moments are often great teachers, even if there is the place for comedy at times. Thinking about maternity wards, many in here, in this room, want to get pregnant and cannot. Wanted to get pregnant and it took years. Have gone through miscarriages, have wanted to get married and the right person hasn't come along, have wanted to get a new job but can't afford to go back to school, have lost a parent or best friend or great aunt or grandparent just in the last week or two, have experienced challenge after challenge. And many times we ask, why won't the Lord answer my prayer? And I don't know why precisely, but I know he is working through it. I know he's shaping and molding you. The preacher says, wise ones ponder death and life accordingly. They ponder death. They think also about life as they think about death. And then they live accordingly. Jonathan Edwards uh, is a, a preacher from, from the past. Um, really helpful uh, Baptist preacher in... Um, is he in the U.S. or in Great Britain? I'm blanking. In the U.S. I was thinking about him quoting Spurgeon here in a few minutes. Jonathan Edwards has these resolutions that are super helpful about uh, ways to live, about things that he's resolved to do. So I just want to read three of them to you. So these are, these are resolutions that he's made. Number seven. So there's, there's a list of, I don't know, it's upwards of 70. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Now, this is, that's probably too strong of a statement because there's a lot of things I would not do if it was the last hour of my life, but maybe the last week or last month, 
We want to do things that, that matter. We want to invest in things that matter. Number 17, resolve that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Number 52, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. Pondering death is a better teacher than pondering life. Trevor shared with me, uh, we have a church that we've kind of learned a good number of things from uh, out in Nebraska called Coram Deo. And they had a podcast um, that they put out, I think it was a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago. And the podcast was called Reverse Engineering Your Life. And it was based on the book of Ecclesiastes. And they essentially asked, what kind of person do you want to be 10 years, 20 years from now, or at the end of your life? And maybe, maybe your life isn't going to have but a year, five years, 10 years left. What kind of changes would you need to make in your life now in order to become that person? So we think about the end and we reverse engineer our life backwards and think about the people we want to be. What can you say about a person on the day of their birth? We've had babies born just recently uh, in this church and I'm sure we'll have many to come. But other than talking about basic looks, maybe they're cute, maybe they look a little bit like mama, a little bit like daddy, they poop, they pee, they cry, they sleep. Overall, you can't really say anything else of substance about a baby. Maybe you can. I I don't feel like I necessarily can. If it's your own baby, you can probably say a lot more. If you're looking at other people's babies, it's, you know, there's only so much. But what can you say about a person on the day of their death? You can say that they were like Jesus. You can say that they were kind and generous, that they served people well, that they evangelized. Or she loved her garden. She loved knitting. She loved writing. She loved sports. She loved whatever. Fill in the blank of things that are fine, they're okay, but isn't very meaningful at all, isn't very much at all about the person, about who that person actually was. Or you could say she didn't really love anything or anyone apart from herself. She lived for herself. Now probably that would not necessarily be said at a funeral, but it might be thought in the background. Only really positive things are generally shared. Now I don't know, probably not many of you necessarily know, but I am a lover of, maybe not lover, or I, I like country music. That's really the main thing I listen to. When I drive around, that's probably news to a lot of you and probably wild and, you know, mind-blowing. But that's, that's what I like to listen to. Uh, Whistle 100, whatever other stations have country music on it, that's generally what I'm going to listen to in my five- and seven-minute drives. So I was thinking about a song this week, Tim McGraw, Live Like You Were Dying. Lyrics go, he said, that, so he's talking about, he's hearing from another, another person. I was in my early 40s with a lot of, li- I'm not going to sing it, but... With a lot of life before me, when a moment came that stopped me on a dime, I spent most of the next days looking at the x-rays and talking about the options and talking about sweet time. I asked him, when it sank in that this might really be the real end, how's it hit you when you get that kind of news? Man, what'd you do? And then he went skydiving and Rocky Mountain climbing and he rode a bull for 2.7 seconds and and he did some things that he really wanted to do. And then the next verse, he said, 
I was finally the husband that most of the time I wasn't, and I became a friend a friend would like to have. And all of a sudden, going fishing wasn't such an imposition, and I went three times that year I lost my dad. Well, I, I finally read the good book. Hopefully you don't finally read the good book when you're you know, on your deathbed. Hopefully we're reading the good book you know, continually for the rest of our time. That's, that's a good pointer to learn from here. And I took a good, long, hard look at what I'd do if I could do it all again. And then, you know, I went skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing, so on and so forth. And then it says at the end, and he said, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. And I think what we're to learn from verses 1 through 4 is that we are all dying. We will all die. Now we have babies in this room who are three and four weeks old. We have college students. We have single, married, children, older people, younger people, all the ages in here. And we will all die. And I think this passage tells us that the wise are going to contemplate their ultimate death and loss and other serious matters. And fools do not. They carelessly live as if there is no end in sight, busying themselves with happy and silly things. Now this seems to almost reverse earlier sayings, something that Trevor talked on last week. The preacher seems to say that people who eat and drink and find enjoyment are almost fools. We need to be serious. We need to ponder life. The preacher seems to be changing his mind, but perhaps he's not confused, not self-contradictory, not changing his mind. Maybe the right view of our mortality lies somewhere between living moment by moment and just enjoying the day you have versus dwelling on the inevitability of death at an unknown future date. Maybe tomorrow, maybe 50 years from now. None of this is meant to be joyless or repressive as we are to think about death. Matthew 5, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The blessed who mourn, those ones in Matthew 5, are also invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 19. Our death, if in Christ, will be the ultimate fulfillment of life. We are always searching for something more. And in the end, we will perfectly receive what Christ has won for you if you are in Christ. Philippians 1, 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. A beautiful verse about the tensions of living. Two quotes up on the, on the screen that I found from uh, commentators this week that I thought were just helpful in summarizing this. A coffin is a better preacher than a bassinet. A coffin is a better preacher than a bassinet. And then the second one, death is an evangelist. Death is an evangelist. From these two, we're both to, to consider the end and to think about what is the purpose of what we are doing? Why are we here? What do I want my life to look like? So overall, we find in verses 1 through 4, this should be on the screen as well, the invitation from death to consider life. The invitation from death to consider life. Let's go on, read verses 5 through 13. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. 
Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools, in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. But the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Now, chapter 6, verse 12, the verse we read right at the beginning, told us that the wisest teachers cannot tell us what will come with certainty. But verse 5 highlights that nevertheless, the counsel of the wise is a useful source of guidance for ordinary living. The rebuke of the wise is helpful. Listen to it. Now at age 21, now I know some of us are maybe 21 or under 21, but I know many of us in the room are, are well over the age of 21. At age 21, most of us probably thought that we knew a whole lot about life, about Jesus, about whatever the things that you cared about at age 21. And maybe, we'd, maybe we did. Youth are not necessarily to be looked down upon just because of a younger age. But for me, just thinking about growing a bit wiser has shown me that there is way more out there that I don't know that I could ever fathom knowing in this life. I know more today at age 31 than at 21 but I'm also way more aware of how limited I am. I would offer such strong encouragement and exhortation to 21-year-old Aaron. I would just, I would almost probably lay into him. I'd give him such strong encouragement. And yet 21-year-old Aaron would not listen. There's no way. Because I was, I was a fool. I wouldn't listen to the wisdom of those around me. Wisdom abounds in this room. But not because of age or not because of experience, but because of a deep, abiding, ongoing relationship with Jesus. I encourage you in this room to find others who deeply love Jesus, walk closely with them, and ask them to speak into your life, to rebuke you, to correct you. For better, far better is that than the song of fools. Verse 6, the song of fools is meaningless. It's like thorns used for fuel. They make a lot of noise at the beginning, but then they burn quickly, way more quickly than charcoal would. They die out quickly, and it leaves nothing but cold, dead ashes. And then verse 7 is, is showing that even the wise can fail through extortion or bribery. This is a temptation that can over, overcome them. Verses 5 and 6, we're to see that the, the wise we're to favor the wise above the foolish, but verse 7 is a caution that we're to not be too optimistic about our wisdom, that extortion and bribery can still come. I think about with this, Casey and I, uh, we lived in Kenya for a couple of years, and a lot of times during the day, but especially at night, um, it was about a, maybe two miles uh, just south of our house, there would always be a police checkpoint that we would have to roll through. They would set up spike strips, and you would have to roll through these police checks. And a lot of times, I would try to drive as close to the car in front of me as I possibly could. We were driving on the left side of the road, so I'd pull off a little bit to the left. Because policemen would just be standing there waving down people. 
And really, the, the goal of it was to maybe catch somebody who had been drinking and driving or something like that. But I know for me, the, the issue was going to be asking for some kind of bribe. And it would always be worded in the way of, um, do you have any, any coffee or any tea? It's cold out here. Is there any uh, money that could help me out? One time, Casey and I got asked in our last couple of days, how is the U.S. dollar doing? And I was like, I don't know. I'm assuming it's doing fine. Um, I'm not sure. Is that, are you asking me for U.S. dollars? You just want to know how the U.S. dollar is doing compared to a Kenyan shilling? I'm not sure. But it's interesting in thinking about bribery and extortion and how it comes. And then a lot of times I would share that, that we would try to carry Bibles with us and then maybe offer it at that moment. And then immediately it would be a shutdown. It was like, okay, never mind. Like, I'm not, we're not going to ask you for a bribe or something. We, we, we recognize that maybe there's some wrongness to that. Verse 8 and 9. This, this, these two verses offer an encouragement towards patience over pride and anger. The wise person is better off being at the end of a thing than the beginning. If they're at the end of the thing, they're not going to be subject to overconfidence or pride or lofty goals or whatever. Experience has taught them as they've gone and gotten to the end. The person who is patient in spirit, this is the wise person. They have self-control. They're careful. They're cautious. The proud in spirit is impatient. They cannot wait for the final result. They act rashly. And then this verse encourages us to be slow to anger because anger lodges deep within. Now, anger still might be the appropriate reaction to something foolish, but we need to be slow. Marks of the fool is to be impatient, to be arrogant, and to be quick to anger. Verse 10, remember the good old days. Weren't they better? Who who of us have not said that? Remember the good old days. Think about the good old days. We long for the former days when we were in college, when we were going on adventures, when we had no kids, when our kids were younger and cute and sweet, when our kids were actually at home, when we had better health, when we were more athletic, when we looked better, when we had a better job, when we didn't have responsibilities. But why is this not wisdom to ask, why were the former days better than these? The Lord has you right where you were meant to be. He is present here, right here with us, wherever the Lord has placed you, whatever current circumstances you're going through. Two quotes, very uh, different theologians. The first one comes from C.H. Spurgeon, and I, I struggled for such a long time out of college making decisions. I was just paralyzed by making decisions. And so I bought a print that had uh, this quote on it uh, to try to help encourage me. Remember this, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. And we could, we could argue in nuance, but, but the point is God is in control and God is leading and guiding you accordingly. A very different type of theologian, Andy Menard from The Office. One of the, this might be the last episode, I don't exactly remember, one of the last episodes He has a quote, I wish there was a way to know you were in the good old days before you actually left them. You are in the good old days. Right now, this present moment, I don't know what the date is, February 27th, worshiping in the Greer First Baptist Gym in Greer, South Carolina, whatever age you are, 
we're hanging out with friends. We, get, we have the freedom to worship the Lord Jesus. We're getting to learn from the Bible. We're getting to sing together. These are the good old days. This is a sweet moment that we get to experience. I think about this past week, the, the Hoffman and Markham a community group came together for a, a combined fun night. And what is sweeter than being with, new fr- with friends, making some new friends, having a conversation with friends, eating good chili, taking delight in delicious desserts, laughing and playing hilarious games that Steph Norris comes up with. I don't think anything magical necessarily happened that night. I didn't have a mind-blowing conversation with anyone that totally changed the trajectory of my whole life. But we ate, we drank water and soda, and we found enjoyment in the good things that God gave us. The Lord is working today. Harking back to the past imposes burdens on the present. Focusing only on the future is like pursuing a rainbow's end. You're never going to get there. It's never going to be as satisfying as you long for. You're always going to need more. Verses 11 and 12. Wisdom is great. It's especially needed if you have an inheritance. Luke 15, thinking about the parable of the prodigal son. He does not have wisdom and he goes and just spends his inheritance. We need wisdom. Wisdom is an advantage to all humans. Wisdom protects us. Just as money can protect us in a time of trial, wisdom protects and preserves life. Both protect against misfortunes of life. Now, knowledge has a key advantage over money. It preserves life physically and spiritually. And then we think about verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked. This is almost very similar wording as in chapter 1, verse 15 in Ecclesiastes. After all we've talked about related to death, wisdom, and life, stop, consider, and think deeply on the work of the Lord. No amount of human wisdom and ability can make straight that which God has made crooked. And I love that picture. Uh, God has made a lot of crooked. Now this is not crooked in the ethical sense of wicked or corrupt. It's crooked in the sense of being mysterious, impossible to get our hands around, impossible to make straight. We live in a fallen world and this world will always remain mysterious. God has not chosen to reveal the answers to all of mankind's questions. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is mysterious cannot be made clear. Wisdom will not grant that. Only God can reveal the truth. None of us follow a nice, clear plan. But that doesn't matter. God is the one who is in sovereign control over all things. And so wisdom is limited. Wisdom can only get us so far. All the wisdom in the world won't necessarily mean that tomorrow is not the end of our days. So verses 5 through 13, we see the invitation from wisdom to consider life. The invitation from wisdom to consider life. So we've talked about death. We've talked about wisdom. They both encourage us to consider life. And then verse 14 is really a summary of all that we've talked about so far. 
In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Whether we like it or not, we have to manage tensions present in this human life. Verse 14, prosperity and adversity, joy and sorrow, those are going to come to all of us. So really our summary statement for our whole passage that we get from verse 14, enjoy the good times, trust God and grow in the hard times. Maybe the right view of life is between the constant enjoyment of the present moment with the contemplation of our mortality, of our finiteness. We are coming to our end. So enjoy the good times. Enjoy the prosperous times. Ecclesiastes, one of the the major themes is that everything is vapor. Everything is vanity. Everything is but a mist. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. Life is short. Life will be perpetually unsatisfying. So enjoy. Enjoy it. Chapter 5, verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. I've been trying this week, last couple of weeks, as I've thought about this passage, to contemplate death, to think about my mortality, and to really enjoy the good, sweet moments that God offers each and every day. Tuesday night, uh, Audrey, I have a little girl, she just turned two. We went for a jog. Um, she was in the stroller. Uh, she wasn't running alongside me. Uh, I was pushing her. We got back. I took the trash out. Um, Casey had to feed Samuel, and I left the door open. So Audrey comes running outside, and she says, I want to go this way. I was like, okay. She's carrying her goldfish. It's probably 6.30 p.m. The sun is going down. It's, there was, um, it had kind of been raining that day, so there's beautiful clouds with the sunlight behind them. We're walking towards the direction of the sunset, and I'm doing that as I'm just walking with my little girl, just holding one little finger. And it was just such a sweet moment. I've been, been studying this passage all day, and it's like, I'm just going to enjoy this moment. There may be other things I want to do. I want to get dinner prepared. I need to get her a bath. I need it. There's so many things to do. I'm just going to enjoy this sweet moment that we have for, for five, six, seven minutes. We walked down the street a block, and we walked back. We stopped. We ate goldfish. It was delightful. On Friday afternoon, Audrey was, was napping. Casey was getting ready and organized to, to leave the house. And so I have a little boy, Samuel. He's six months. He and I just went sat on the front porch. I think it was 70 degrees on, on Friday. It was beautiful. We sat in the shade. There was a slight breeze. We just watched cars go by. We felt the wind on our faces. We laughed. We just sat there in quiet. We didn't cry, so that was a big thumbs up. What is better than that? What is better than just sweet moments with loved ones? But it's all a vapor. I I didn't accomplish anything in those moments. Samuel and Audrey won't even remember it. Probably in a few weeks, a month, a year, I'll barely remember it. No one else was there. Just Audrey and me walking slowly up the road, just me and Samuel sitting on the front porch. But what a beautiful gift to me, for me to cherish, to think about the Lord's goodness 
and to praise him for what he has given. So find joy in the moments where you can fish with a buddy. You can have a conversation with a new friend or an old friend. You can go on a walk. You can play a board game. Find joy in the moments where you can serve someone else. Find joy in the moments where we can come here on Sunday nights through the gift of Greer First Baptist and worship the Lord. Each moment is a gift. So don't long for the past. Don't long for the future. Enjoy the moments that you have. Life is built on memories, but we don't want to just live in the past. Why were the former days better than these? From a worldly perspective, maybe the former days were better. But God is working in these current, maybe hard and challenging days. So in the hard times, trust God and grow. When hard times come, do not escape and draw back. Escapism is not the answer. We are not necessarily meant to find out why the hard days come. The wise man learns from the day of death and learns from the hard things life presents. God grants us days of prosperity and days of adversity and hardship. Paul learned the secret of both. The passage that Trevor highlighted last week, Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. We think about Jesus being crucified. There's nothing harder, more painful. There's no darker time in history. When we were going through Matthew, it's literally, it talks about the sun going away. And it is midday, it is noon, and Jesus is crucified, and the world is dark. And yet, there is nothing more beautiful, world-changing, or life-changing than the crucifixion of Jesus. When we face evil, when we face adversity, hardship, In this life, we can know that God is not immune to it. Jesus can sympathize. You can come up with so many questions in this life, and there will not be answers for them. Not all questions have answers. Trevor has been really helpful to me in helping me learn that that there's just tensions to manage in this life. Think about the way the Bible will will speak. The Bible speaks of God's ways and thoughts being higher than our own. So we may have limited understanding, Isaiah 55 verse 9. And yet, we can trust, Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. We may feel that we're in the hardest of times, and yet, Matthew 7, 11 is true. We are evil, and we give good gifts to our children Our Father in heaven is going to give good gifts to us. I think about a passage, super quoted. Uh, I went to this um, website that has cross-references, and the the next two verses were the two verses that are looked up the most on this website. Jeremiah 29, 11. I don't know if you've heard it. I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and future. And it's it's a verse that reads beautifully and amazingly, and it's true. But the people Jeremiah is talking to are in exile. They are away from their homeland. They are in a trial, in a hardship. And yet, Jeremiah is speaking that God has a plan. Philippians 4, 13, verse that Trevor read last week, I can do all things in Christ. That's a a beautiful verse for, you know, I don't know, athletes love having that maybe on their shoes or tatted on somewhere on their body i can do all things in christ and it's true but paul is in prison when he writes that he's he's nearing the end of his days he's in prison for his faith 
in Jesus. And he's saying, I can do all things in Christ. God gives the prosperous days and he gives the, adverse, the, the days of adversity. Not so that we may figure God out, but so that we may trust in his sovereign hand to lead God and care for us. May we learn from our mortality. May we consider death. May we live with wisdom. And may we trust our triune God with everything. He is in control. And in just a minute, we're going to have the beautiful opportunity to, to take the Lord's Supper. We're going to get to think about the day that Jesus was crucified, that his body was broken, his blood was shed for you and for me. And I pray that if you have not trusted in Jesus, if you've not turned to Jesus, I would love to talk to you. If you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus, I would love to talk to you uh, right after this, uh, right after the service, or I'll be standing in the back as we sing our last song. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come to you knowing that you are in control, that you are the one who rules and reigns over all things. In a world that can so often just fill us with questions, fill us with asking why, Lord, you are in control. You are the one who rules and reigns. You have made the days of prosperity and you have made the days of adversity. All so that we may not find out what will come after us. We don't know what's going to happen in 30 minutes, an hour, much less tomorrow, a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, 10 years from now. And yet, Lord, we know that you are in control. And that is what we have to find hope in. May you help us to, to trust in you as you lead us. Lord, in here, we may be walking in hard days. We may be walking in sweet and prosperous days. Lord, I pray that we would enjoy those sweet moments, these sweet days that you give us. And I pray that we would trust you and that we would be intentional to grow in the hard days. Knowing that the hard days are often what mature us the most. Oftentimes what the, the seasons where we grow most spiritually are in seasons of challenge. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally. Lord, may you mature us to look more and more like Jesus. And would our hope be found in the Lord Jesus and nowhere else? Lord, I pray that we would go away from this night considering our own deaths. I pray that we would live accordingly. That we would live in a way so as we can honor you and glorify you. In a way that we will be pleased and happy with when we come to our deathbed. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here tonight and that we have the opportunity to, to worship you and know you. We love you so much. Amen.